family, if you have your Bibles, open them to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. How many of you are already behind and you read through the Bible? That's okay. Get caught up. It's real easy to get caught up now, but I just want to give you some, a little bit of hint here. If you get behind in the course of the year, and I hope you don't, I hope you're able to read the two or three chapters that we need to read every day, but if you were to get behind, and you get behind a week, or you get behind two weeks, don't try to catch up. Just come to where we're at right now. Pick up where we're at and just, and just read right along. You'll be, you'll be fine. But we did get the chance to read this week uh, chapters 1 through 11. And, of course, we read some in, in John, the Gospel of John and also in, in the Psalms. There's so much in these first 11 chapters of Scripture. And what I hope we come away with from our time here this morning is just a, a renewed sense of the majesty and the sovereignty of God. When I say that God is sovereign, that's simply to say that, that God's in control. There's absolutely nothing that happens in the universe that's outside of God's authority, that's outside of God's influence. As King of kings and Lord of lords, our Father God has no limitations. To say that God is, is majestic, or perhaps no one says that better than David when he, write, when he wrote Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord... How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have set all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea and everything that passes along the paths of the seas. O Jehovah, our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. No one says it better than the psalmist David. The truths here in these opening chapters of the Bible are, are so vital that if we miss them, I fear we miss risking the whole point of the Bible. Now, obviously, we don't have time this morning to cover everything that's in these 11 chapters, all the foundational truths here, but I want us to focus on a few of those truths, and, and I hope we can come away with a renewed uh, or perhaps a new grasp of the big picture of God's revelation of Himself in Holy Scripture, the story of, of God and His relationship with humanity, about which we'll all be reading and I'll be preaching in 2024. Today we're focusing again on the beginning of that story in the first 11 chapters. And at the end of the year, we're going to look at how the story ends. Those, for those of us who are going to live with Christ forever in heaven, the story never ends. Amen? As we look at these chapters, we're going to see, some again, some foundational truths, among others, revealed here. We're going to discover much about the nature of God, the nature of man and of creation, and the nature of sin and of Satan. And we will, I hope, come to a clearer understanding of of God's plan for redemption. We're going to read a, a, just a few of the verses that we had this week. Uh, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word? We're going to begin in chapter 1, verse 1. Read a couple of verses there, a few more, 
in the latter part of the chapter and then turn to chapter 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then skip down. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then we move to chapter 3. We know what's happened in the first part of chapter 3. As you read that this week with, the, with the Eve, of course, blames Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the serpents, and God brings uh, judgment upon all three of them. He says this to the serpent, beginning in verse 15, The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." Father, as we have uh, read these verses this week and again this morning, we uh, recognize them. They are so familiar to us. Uh, I pray, Father, you would help us to set aside any preconceived notions that are not rooted in Scripture and listen to your Holy Spirit today as we're guided through uh, this passage and others that point to you and your redemptive love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. One unshakable truth that we discover about God from the very beginning of this story is that God is eternal. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created. Now, we, again, we've all read and heard those verses all of our Christian lives, but, but what do they really mean? They mean, among other things, that God was not created that there was never a moment when God did not exist and that He will never cease to exist. So when we talk about the, the nature of God and we talk about His attributes, His omnipresence, His omnipotence, His omniscience, His sovereignty, and others, another of those fundamental attributes is that He is eternally existent without a beginning and an end. And the theological term there is eternality, the eternality of God which is closely tied to another attribute of God known as the aseity of God. The aseity of God, which simply means that God is sufficient unto Himself. He's independent of anything outside of Himself, and that includes time. Now stay with me now. God, our God, is the Lord of time. He exists above time. He exists apart from time. But He's able and He's free to enter into time to accomplish His purposes. The Bible teaches God's aseity by saying that He doesn't need anything above Himself. We see that in Acts 17, beginning in verse 24, where we read, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands, as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face 
of the earth. And then down to verse 29, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So eternality and aseity are attributes of God that mark the great difference between the Creator and the creature, us. But also, they they guard God's freedom to enter into the creation at any point in time without compromising self, to enter himself, to enter into relationships, and to interact with the world, to interact with his people, to interact with us. God's eternality is his aseity with respect to time. He's Lord over time because he's the creator of time, and he stands above time, but he enters time freely at his will. He, he transcends time in that he has no beginning or end. He does not change. He is equally conscious of past, present, and future. And he's not limited by the passing of time and what he can, can accomplish. Now, I realize this is a lot. And we've, I've thrown at least one new uh, word to you there that you might not have heard before. But we're talking about God's critical attributes without which he would not be God, could not be God. Still, if those statements about the eternality of God and the aseity of God are, are impossible for us to, to wrap our minds around, we're in good company. Moses couldn't. He was out on the backside of the desert herding sheep, and when God showed up in a burning bush with flames, which miraculously did not burn the bush, did not consume the bush, and when God told Moses that he would be his messenger to go and tell the people of Israel that he was going to deliver them out of the hands of Pharaoh, out of Egypt, Moses said, they won't believe me. They're going to ask, what God are you talking about? What's his name? Then what should I tell them, Moses asked God. God replied, you know this, I am who I am, which is to say, I am the one who always is, was, and always will be. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. A couple of quotes on the eternality of God uh, from men that are a lot smarter than me that I think might help clear things up for you. Sinclair Ferguson writes, All other things derive, that is, they obtain being. Their isness is secondary. But God did not derive his being from any other. His isness is underived, original, eternal. He was and is and is to come, the eternal I am. Rather than concealing his identity, his, this name I am reveals the deepest mystery of his being and rocks our minds with the discovery that we cannot begin to fathom the mind and life of this eternal God. And then this from Dr. Dump, Dr. John MacArthur. God is in time since he interacts with his creation and his creatures from moment to moment. But God must transcend time or he is limited by another entity, time itself. In other words, God's eternity means that he is distinct from time. Nevertheless, he is not completely separate from it. Rather, he is present in every moment, controlling every moment for his purposes and glory. God is fully present with every moment of time. And he knows its entirety and its succession of moments. But God is never subject to time. Rather, he uses it as his servant to reveal his perfections. The prophet Isaiah said, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. 
Abraham knew the nature of our eternal God. In Genesis 21, 33, we read, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. In Psalm 145, verse 13, we read, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. And in Psalm 90, verse 2, we read, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. We can also read in the New Testament, in the book of Colossians, verse 16 of chapter 1, For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. If we can begin to understand, as best we can, that God is eternal, that He is mysteriously beyond time, we can, can perhaps approach the beginning of what it means to understand His greatness. But we can be certain that He can do anything. He can even pass judgment on time. For, for us, time may be short, time may be fast, but it is irrelevant for God because He's eternal. So first, God is eternal, and God is also creator. The Bible opens with a monumental statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And with that statement, the Word of God, Holy Scripture, affirms the existence of the universe and everything in it as the product of God's creative activity. So very clearly... A very important statement, let's say it again, affirms the existence of the universe and everything in it as the product of God's creative activity. Genesis 1-1 does that. We're shown in this verse that, that evolution, which is still the dominant theory of science, is not true. What exists exists not because it evolved, but because God created it out of nothing, solely by His spoken word. All he did was speak, and it was. He spoke, and there was light. Over and over again, the Word tells us, He said, and it was. In verse 3, God said. Verse 6, God said. Verse 9, and God said. Verse 14, and God said. Verse 20, and God said. Verse 24, and God said. Verse 26, then God said. God simply spoke, and everything in the universe came into existence in response to His spoken Word. We, we could say then that Genesis 1-1 gives an all-encompassing account of creation. God, God created the heavens and the earth. You can't make a broader statement than that. It covers everything. That's a way of saying that God created everything in the universe, everything that exists. Whether we're talking about galaxies or whether you're talking about nebulae or solar systems, whether you're talking about the farthest reaches of the universe in space or the smallest grain of sand or electrons or neutrons or protons or quarks or the smallest bacterial microbe on the planet Earth, absolutely everything was created by God. He's the creator of all things. Visible and invisible. And all things means everything from, from various ranks of angels, every form of life, from whales to, to elephants to giraffes to viruses, everything. All things includes every form of, of energy, every form of matter, light, nuclear configurations, electromagnetism, gravity, every law that nature operates by was created within the framework 
of God's creation. All things. Say all things. Now someone's going to say, but pastor, aren't there a lot of alternative theories and ideologies out there about creation? What about evolution? Again, Genesis 1.1 affirms the existence of the universe and everything in it as the product of God's creative activity. This verse proclaims that evolution, the dominant theory of science when it comes to how we got here, is not true. What exists, exists not because it evolved, but because God created it. It was over 100 years ago that Louis Pasteur proved that spontaneous biogenesis, evolution, cannot occur. The first living organism, think about it now, could never have come, out of, come into existence out of nothing by, by mere chance. Cells cannot increase in their complexity. A cell cannot add the information necessary to its DNA, to its genetic code, to take itself to a higher level. That's impossible. It's never been done. It's never been seen. In fact, things actually work the other way. And the second law of thermodynamics reveals, which states that over time, everything tends toward disorder. I'll just skip the slide for you there. Randomness and disorganization. Naturalistic evolution demands that every physical system from the subatomic level on up is the result of some spontaneous and yet increasingly complex and well-ordered processes of assembly. Darwin suggested that living organisms, you and I, came into being via a long string of infinitely complex yet random evolutionary processes. Simple observation, though, empirically confirms the second law of, the, of thermodynamics. The paint on a house eventually peels, right? Dust begins to accumulate. The house falls into disrepair if preventative steps are not taken. Living things that die, rot, and decompose. We can see the results of the second law of thermodynamics before our eyes every day. Nothing mutates upward. In fact, natural selection, which was the phrase that Darwin leaned on, natural selection of the, of the process of change or mutation is always downward. It's never upward. Individual specimens that vary too far from the center of the species go downward. That's the law of entropy. Thus, mutants don't improve the species. They represent a decline in the species. And don't even get me started on the fossil record of supposed evolutionary links because there is not a fossil record that shows the millions of transitional life forms that evolutionists propose and must have been present. None of them are there. Nada. Zip. Zilch. The universe and all that is in it has not evolved over millions of years, but God created the universe as we know it in abrupt fashion. Dr. David Platt quotes Robert Zastrow, former director of NASA's Goddard, Goddard Institute for Space Studies. He wrote this, the details differ, but the essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. This is an exceedingly strange development, unexpected by all but the theologians. They have always believed the word of the Bible, but we scientists did not expect to find evidence for an abrupt beginning because we have had until recently such extraordinary success in tracing the change of chain of cause and effect backward in time. It seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. 
For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of, cre- of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. God is creator. He stands outside of and above all creation. Now someone's going to say, Preacher, you're making a big deal out of the biblical view of creation. Why is it so important? which I would say asking why biblical creation is important is like asking why a foundation is important to a building. Christianity is established in the book of Genesis chapter 1 with in the beginning God created. So beloved, the way we answer that question reflects whether we believe the word of God in its entirety or call into question its truthfulness. The importance of biblical creationism is that it answers the fundamental questions of human existence. Like, how did we get here? Where did we come from? Why are we here? Do we have a purpose? What's the cause of all of our problems? Are the issues of sin and salvation important? What happens to us when we die? Is there life after death? Genesis it's the foundation for the, for the rest of Scripture in which these questions and more are answered. And how you interpret Genesis 1 through 11 impacts how we understand and maintain the truth of the gospel. Every doctrine concerning the gospel is understood in light of the foundation, the historical foundation, in the book of Genesis. This makes Genesis of, of first order importance. And a misunderstanding of the history in, in the first 11 chapters of, Gen- of Genesis will inevitably undermine or, or cause someone to question the validity of the gospel message itself because so much of that history answers the necessity for the gospel in the first place. You see, a reading of the first three chapters of Genesis answers not just the basic questions about human existence, but all the great and critical questions that surround the gospel. How how do we know man's a sinner? How do we know we're all sinners? How do we know that death is the penalty for sin? How do we know that God would provide a Savior? How do we know that Jesus needed to die and rise again physically? How do we know this world is not what it originally was? Believers, we know these things because Genesis describes a very good original creation describes a warning to obey God it describes the disobedience of the first man and first woman it describes rebellions excuse me humanity's rebellious position under the, under the wrath of God it, it describes a promise of the seed of the woman which will crush the seed of the serpent and if the Bible cannot be trusted from the, from the very foundational history in the first chapters of Genesis, which is so closely correlated to the gospel message itself, then one has to ask, is the gospel itself reliable? When it it comes to the confrontation of of evolutionary theory and the gospel, beloved, we have a head-on collision. After all, both accounts are part of the same history in the same book. 
The issue of Genesis and the, and the age of the earth is also an issue that hits at the core of biblical Christianity. The Bible clearly reveals in Genesis that, among other things, death, disease, bloodshed, a carnivorous diet, and thorns and thistles are a consequence of God's curse because of Adam's sin, right? And with an allowance of millions of years prior to the creation of Adam and Eve on the sixth day comes an allowance for death and disease and bloodshed, a carnivorous diet, and thorns and thistles to be present before the fall, before sin causing them. If God's very good creation already contained the consequences of sin before Adam's fall, a very good creation is then called into existence. Not to mention the character of God who declared it to be good and, and calls into question the need for any redemption or restoration by Christ at all. So the age of the earth is itself a gospel-related, biblical authority issue for the Christian. Genesis has been likened to the root of a tree in that it is the spiritual lifeblood of all of Scripture. If you cut the root from the tree, the tree dies. If you discredit Genesis, you remove the authoritative value of all of Scripture. The, the biblical account of creation in the Genesis narrative answer the question of the condition of the human race. These opening chapters deal with the, with the fall of man, but they also leave us with the hope of redemption. We are unified in one man, Adam, a literal, real-life person. Listen, if Adam is not a literal person, then we have no plausible explanation for how sin entered the world. If mankind did not fall from grace by Adam, then mankind, mankind cannot be saved by grace through Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This parallel of Adam as the head of the fallen race and Christ as the head of the redeemed race is important to you and I understanding the entire salvation process. And it's essential to understanding its saving power. Paul writes in Romans 5, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. In light of this, we, we simply must look upon biblical creation as not only the foundation of our value system, but we must look at the creation narrative as factual and not just a story. You see, if it's a fictional story, then the values it introduces are man-reasoned, subject to change as man evolves and that makes them basically worthless. This is the crux of the conflict between science and religion, especially Christianity, that science is fact and religion, Christianity, is merely philosophy. If, if this is true, then our Christian values are just that, values for Christians only, no impact on the secular world. But the truth is that Christianity presents us with a morality that's been established by a transcendent, higher, supernatural being. 
And the morality of God sets an unchangeable standard that not only leads to a better life for us personally, but teaches us how to love others and ultimately bring glory to God, which is our ultimate purpose here. The standard is, of course, exemplified by the life and work of Christ on the cross. It's through His life and His death and His resurrection that we find purpose in this life and hope for a future life with God in heaven. Biblical creation is important because it's the only system that answers the basic questions of life and gives us significance greater than ourselves to live by. It ought to be clear to to all Christians that we cannot believe in both systems, creation and evolution as being true. They are mutually exclusive and stand in opposition to one another. Now, the conventional wisdom is that it doesn't make much difference whether or not evolution is true. The doctrine of creation is seen by many as disconnected from the rest of the creation of the Christian message. The truth, the truth is that what we believe about creation is crucial because it goes to the issue of the inerrancy, the trustworthiness, the authority of Holy Scripture. If the Bible cannot be trusted in the first two chapters, What makes it trustworthy for the rest of the book? Typically, critics will attack the Bible and focus on these 11 chapters, excuse me, these first 11 chapters of Genesis, in particular, the creation account. And the question is, why? Why would they focus there? Because the first 11 chapters of Genesis set the stage for the rest of the biblical story. You can't understand the unfolding of narrative of Scripture without Genesis 1 through 11. There's so much foundational material in those chapters for the rest of the Bible. Creation, the fall, sin, the certainty of judgment, the necessity of a Savior, and the introduction of the gospel. And to ignore these foundational doctrines is to render the rest of the Bible as, as unconnected and meaningless. But God is eternal. God is creator, and God is our redeemer. Let's consider the first of Genesis chapter 3. You see the first appearance of Satan, deception and lies, verses 1 through 5. First temptation, the first sin, the first disobedience, verses 1 through 6. The first guilt in verse 8. The first excuses offered by man in verse 12. The first judgment of Satan in verse 14 of woman in verse 16 of man in verse 17 and following but beloved also we see the first gospel reflected in Romans 16 20 the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet we also see a theologians tell us a picture of redemption of atonement in the making when God sacrificed animals and made clothing for Adam and the Lord made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And in this hope of redemption, this hope of redemption that we see there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 particularly, comes to fruition at the end of Scripture. It comes to fruition in Revelation 20 through 22, chapters 20. Through 22. Revelation 20, the first anchor of hope that we hear about in Revelation, excuse me, in Genesis 1 through 11, and we see it at the end of Revelation, at the end of the story. The first thing we see is that Satan will be defeated. 
just as promised by God in Genesis 3.15. He's going to be crushed. We see this in Revelation 20, verse 10. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Trampled, crushed, vanquished forever. So when the enemy comes against you, Beloved, when you, when you see His handiwork in the world all around us, and don't we see that every day? Remember this. His defeat is a done deal. Say done deal. When you, you and I experience His temptations in our lives, we can know this. We're struggling against a defeated foe, and ultimately He has no power over us. Now, make no mistake about it. He's intelligent. He's devious. He's a first-rate liar. He's a master of deception, but he is and will remain defeated. Not only is he defeated, we learn at the end of the story that sin will also be destroyed. Sin will be destroyed. Look at verse 1 of chapter 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, no sin here now, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then in verse 4 we read, He that is God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Then you get to the very end of the chapter. Listen to this, verse 27. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, no, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So we see purity, holiness, sin vanquished, Satan defeated, sin destroyed, God's creation restored. That's the completed picture we see in Revelation chapter 21. A new heaven, a new earth. The picture is creation restored and beloved we long for that day do we not Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that all creation longs for this day when everything will be made right and new and whole the perfect of a, the picture of a, a perfect creation and, and perfect relationships that we see in Genesis 1 and 2 before the fall will be our reality Eden restored God's people rescued God's people with him forever in glory Notice verse 4 of chapter 22. They will see His face. Love, what a promise. What a promise for you and me to hold on to when life is overwhelming us with pain and sorrow and difficulty. One day, you and I are going to see the face of our Redeemer and experience life eternal with Him. What a great and wonderful promise that is. Satan will be defeated. Sin will be destroyed. Creation will be restored. And we will be rescued, the rescued people of God. And ultimately, God's name will be praised for all of eternity as our King and our Creator and our Judge and our Savior. Don't leave here this morning without getting this. It is of utmost importance. Out of everything we've talked about, this is most important. As we walk through the rest of the year and even for the rest of our lives, as we respond to this word, Genesis 1 through 11 points us to Christ. The Bible, you see, is one book. 
one book with 66 chapters and running through it from beginning to end, from creation to recreation, is a grace-filled thread of redemption rooted in Jesus Christ. The picture I hope that we've seen this morning in Genesis 1 and 2 is creation in all of its beauty and all of its holiness. God and man and creation in perfect harmony. Beautiful picture in Genesis 1 and 2. No sin. The same picture at the end of the Bible. Revelation 21 and 22. Same picture. New heaven, new earth, God with His people, no sin. The rest of the Bible in between, well, that's the story of how you get from Genesis 3 to Revelation 21. It's a story of how God the Father is redeeming His sinful people through the work of God the Son and all for His glory. That's what the Bible is about. And what we need to realize is the only way to redemption is through a Redeemer. And what that means is this. Don't miss this. Everything in this story is intended to point us to our Redeemer, who is Christ the Lord. Would you pray with me?